Well, I trust your hearts have been prepared to hear the word from uh, your very, very joyful participation in song this morning. Um, I was tremendously encouraged by your singing and certainly encouraged by um, that number as well. Thank you, gentlemen. Romans chapter 6 this morning. As we continue on, for those of you who are guests, we typically make it our habit to study through one book of the Bible at a time. And uh, this particular book of the Bible is what we've been uh, discussing for some time now, um, actually since the beginning of the year. And um, we'll continue on this morning in Romans chapter 6. All right. Before we do that, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this grand opportunity to open up and look into the perfect law of liberty, your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promise in James 1.25 that whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, he being not a forgetful hearer but a faithful doer of the word, he would be blessed in his deed. So, Lord, we, we pray that you would arm all of our hearts and minds, we would arm our hearts and minds to be faithful um, doers of the word as we hear it outlined for us this morning. And we look forward to what it means to you blessing us in our deed and our action based upon what we come to know. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've outlined this book numerous times for you. I don't want to go back and redo that this morning, but this particular section of the book of Romans um, teaches us how we can become daily more like God in our character. I'll just keep it that simple. Romans chapter 6 and 7 teaches us how we can become daily more like God in our character. Now we have to understand something that's most important. If you recall, last week we went back to chapter number 5 and we looked at two particular places. One of those was verse 20, that we never go this journey towards God's character alone. It all starts the moment we come to know who Jesus Christ is and we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, that grace that transforms us that help from heaven that transforms us on the inside continues to underpin our efforts to understand God's word so that we can apply God's word, particularly in relationship to personal holiness. God's grace underpins it all. It underpins our learning of the word because growing in the likeness of God's character can only be the fruit of learning the word of God. The doing is in the learning of Bible doctrine. So we're saved by grace, we're taught by grace the word of God, so then we're able to live by grace. So really, we're only able to successfully live in the light of God's character as much as we know the doctrine of God's word. Does that make sense? Amen. 
We're only able to successfully live the character of God when we know the word of God. And grace underpins all of it. The saving, the learning, and the doing. We took chapter 6 last week and we divided it into two major sections. Both begin with a particular question. And we'll highlight those questions here very quickly again this morning. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin? Are we to make it a pattern of sin? And underline that phrase, continue in sin, so that grace may increase. And then he answers it, may it never be. And then he goes on with a question of explanation that we discussed last week. We'll go into further discussion today. How shall we who died to sin still continue to live in it. Then if you go over to chapter 6, verse 15, we have our second question, but it's phrased somewhat similarly, but a little differently. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And he answers it, may it never be. And then he goes on with a question of clarification that's going to lead us into our final section of our sermon probably next week. So let's real quickly begin and possibly end with a brief examination of these two questions. The first question asks, should we make it a pattern of sitting? Should we continue in sin? But the second question is really interesting to me. He asks it differently. Should we even sin? I think there's great encouragement for us in the body of Christ in relationship to our own personal growth and Christ-likeness. All of us would immediately say, of course, when we're truly born again, we, uh, we're dead to sin. We're going to be alive in Christ. We'll explain what that means in the context. But none of us are going to be involved in a pattern of perpetually sinning. That seems a little bit easier to comprehend. But when you get to the second question, should we even continually battle with a sin? He goes from a pattern to a particular sin in the second question, telling us that not only broadly does the context start out here with a depth of understanding of doctrine, but it comes down narrow to focus even on that sin that in your old sin nature you might be privy to fall to. It's temptation more often than any other sin. We often hear that, don't we? As Christians, there's one particular sin that you might struggle with more often than not. And, and you groan in your spirit when you fall prey to its temptation. Say generally, yeah, Pastor Tim, I'm not living a pattern of all kinds of different sins. My life isn't described by a pattern of sin week to week. But boy, there's that one area. There's that one area that just gets me day after day after day. So much so that I, I groan in my flesh over failing to it. Do you have that one particular sin? I do. I do. And I groan in my spirit wanting to be released from the body of this flesh freedom from that temptation of that one particular area. I'm telling you this, that the two major sections are are divided this way for our encouragement because the doctrine that we'll learn here, particularly in verses 1 through 10, will help us understand that though we may never be sinless this side of heaven, that as we grow in the character of God by understanding the content of the doctrine of God and his word, 
we will sin less and less, not only on a continual basis, but also God will give us increasing, not ultimate, but increasing victory even over that one area that we particularly are weak. Not ultimate victory. That's not going to come until we see Jesus, right? But he will grant you more and more success in your battle against even that one thing that you struggle, in which you struggle. So we took these two major sections and we divided them up into three parts based on three different verbs. The one verb is mentioned several times in verses 1 to 10, different forms of it. The word know or knowing. Know or knowing. The second verb is found in verse 11. It's consider. Your Bible might have the word reckon. Reckon. And the third verb is found in verses 12 and 13 and following, mentioned several times in the final few verses of Romans chapter 6. Uh, presenting, presenting or present. Uh, your Bible might say something different and we'll discuss those various ways in which it's translated when we get there. But we took those three verbs, know, consider, and present, and we alliterated them with the letter C. Right? To know is to comprehend. Comprehend, consider we left it alone. Comprehend, consider, and finally, conform. Comprehend, consider, and conform. So that's where we'll begin this morning, back with our understanding of what we need to comprehend here. Not long ago, I was reading a periodical that had an article in it on um, a teacher who, has, who was in her particular county of her state was awarded for Teacher of the Year in her county. And I always love reading uh, about successful teachers in the classroom uh, because they certainly have a tremendous influence on our children's lives, don't they? But I, I, I always love reading about teachers, but I love reading about teachers who get special awards because not only what they were doing in their classroom was effectual, somehow oh, their, their investment in their children in their classroom had had an influence on their community. Uh, and that's probably really where we see the success of any particular teacher. Uh, but this teacher received uh, an award for Teacher of the Year in her county, and she made this statement in this article, knowledge is power. Right? Knowledge is power. Power to influence a community, she said. So the knowledge that I give my students in the classroom should influence the culture and the function of our community. And folks, while this is certainly a proper statement, an appropriate statement, it is a promotional slogan, if you will, emphasizing the importance of education for children. We can see spiritually from Romans 6, verses 1 to 10, that doctrinal knowledge is power for the believer as well power over the reality of sin in our lives. Power over it, not around it or under it, over it. Justification teaches us that when we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, remember that was chapter 3, 21 to 5, 21, 
we see the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we're free from the ultimate penalty of sin. Right? Chapter 6 and 7 tells us that when we trust Christ as our Savior, all right, that there's a particular doctrine that we need to understand. And when we understand that doctrine clearly, simply, and we apply it, that we will understand that the moment we were born again, God gave us power over not only patterns of multiple sins in our lives, verses 1 and 2, but even a sin in our lives, verse 15. Again, never reaching ultimate perfection. That'll happen when we see Jesus. But in our existence here on earth, how do we demonstrate or decide, if you will, that God has given us power over sin? Now think about this. Go back to comprehend, consider, and conform. And right next to those three C's, if you're taking notes, I want you to write... Uh, these phrases. Right? Comprehension is a matter of the mind. Our mind has to be instructed. Considering, verse 11, is a matter of the heart. Right? Is a matter of the heart. If God the Spirit, or since we're born again, God the Spirit is going to take that which we register in our minds and we understand, and He's going to impress our hearts to do something with what we know. But the third verb here, present or presenting, conform, that's a matter of the will. So we have the mind, the heart, and the will. It's very necessary for all of us, <laughs> all of us who struggle with the reality of sin in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. See, don't, folks, don't we understand that, that your body in and of itself is not sinful? There's nothing sinful about your body. But we're all born with Adam's sin. So the body can be a beachhead for the existence and the practice of sin. Right? And even though we come to know Christ as our Savior, we still struggle with that old part of us that's still there even though we're born again. And so we have to contend with that. But the battle, the battle is more easily won. Even though sanctification is a glorious agony, the battle is more easily won the more we know Bible doctrine. Right? And the more we know about Bible doctrine, we're sure because of Hebrews 4.12 and Isaiah 55.11 that the word of God never returns useless and it is active and powerful, right? So it will help you address your sin patterns or sin issue. Are you with me so far? I hate to be, I don't hate to be, I intend to be so elementary about this that every saint at Grace Church of Menor understands that your ability to grow in the character of God is completely dependent about how much you know about his word. Your struggle with sin is only commensurate with how much you know about the Bible or you don't know. So when you hear us stand here as pastors and say, you know what? You should avail yourself to studying God's word with somebody. Right? And that should be in addition to your own personal study of God's word. So as you study God's word personally and then you study God's word with someone in the church, in addition to that, boy, there's opportunities in Bible studies 
Sunday school, morning service, evening service, Wednesday night, to saturate yourself with the word of God. You understand now that this is not merely an intellectual pursuit of the understanding of Bible data. The more you know about the Bible, the more you're able to practice holiness. So I think we have to just, just emphasize this a lot, okay? Because some of us have a tendency, um, have you ever gone through a turnstile at a, at a department store or at a hospital, right? Sometimes you feel like that in your spiritual life, in relationship to wrestling with sin, right? You just got to go round and round and round and round. Why am I still struggling? Why am I still struggling? Why am I so really God? When's this going to be over? Right? Struggle, 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 struggle. I understand we all go through turnstiles once in a while. Even practically, you have to to get into certain places. But spiritually speaking, wouldn't it be better to go through turnstiles once in a while than feel like you're caught in one? Have you ever been caught in a turnstile? That's aggravating. Not long ago, I was making a visit at a hospital. I went through a turnstile, but I entered the turnstile on my phone. That was a bad mistake, right? Because I walked around that turnstile twice, realizing at that point how ridiculously silly that I was, only to come out on the beginning of my third rotation to the grins and smiles of some ladies at the receptionist desk, right? Getting out of that spiritual turnstile, folks. Constantly falling to the silliness and the foolishness of repetitious sin is directly connected to how much you know about the Bible. So 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 makes a little bit more sense now, right? As newborn babes crave, they lust after the milk of the word in order that they might grow thereby. Hebrews 5 makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Instead of being always milk drinkers, we can become meat eaters, understand the tougher things of God's word, the more difficult things to understand so that we can be better discerners of between good and evil. But it's all underpinned in 2 Peter 3.18 like we saw in Romans 5.20, right? We grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Bible doctrine again help you move through in your growth to Christ-likeness, but it's all underpinned. You're not going to go it alone. You're not going to go it alone. All right, well, I've probably spent more time there than I had planned, but I just want to underpin and underscore, if I can, with my words, the importance of learning here is power. Learning is power. One author said, Christian living depends on Christian learning. Duty is always founded first in doctrine. If Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, he can keep a Christian impotent. If he can keep them ignorant, he can keep them impotent. And that's why the word know here is mentioned multiple times in verses 1 to 10. 
What does Paul want us to know here? He wants us to understand one particular doctrine in the Bible, and that is the doctrine of spirit baptism. Spirit baptism. Baptism in the New Testament um, is both literal and figurative. We saw last week and last month literal baptisms. People who are being dipped and immersed um, to publicly testify of their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's literal baptism. There's figurative baptism. Some would say that even that literal baptism is a symbol. It's a figure of us identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The work of the gospel, if you will. Whether you want to get caught up in, you know, being dipped in the water represents you dying to Christ figuratively. And being raised up out of the water represents you being identified with Christ's resurrection power over sin. That's fine. I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. But really, when someone's dipped here, literally, they're publicly testifying that they have identified with the whole of the gospel work of Jesus Christ. And they've embraced it, and it's changed their lives. That's why they're willing to obey. It's part of the demonstration of their life change. What Paul discusses here in Romans chapter 6 is spirit baptism. Hold your fingers here, and let's go back. I tell you what, before you go back to, uh, go over to 1 Corinthians, let's look at verse 3. The end of verse 2 says, how shall we who died to sin live in it? That's the first question of explanation. The second question of explanation, Romans 6, 3, or do you not know, this is the desire we need to comprehend Bible doctrine, do you know that, that all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, go over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The baptism that we're studying here is a literal baptism as well. But it's not a literal baptism that you do out of obedience to God's word after you're saved. It's a literal baptism that God did for you the moment you were born again. Still literal. It happened. It was just subjective to your experience, not objective. It's not something you objectively did to get in a tank. This is what the spirit of God objectively did for you in placing you into Jesus Christ. And we'll study that more here in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, chapters 12 to 14, as you know, is one of the four classic texts on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. But one thing we realize here from verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Spirit baptism that's mentioned not only in Romans 6.3 and 1 Corinthians 12.13 is the same spirit baptism that was prophesied by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 and verse 8. Prophesied by Christ, excuse me. Oh, John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 and verse 8. 
I baptize you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Right? Mentioned also cross-reference in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And ultimately we know that this was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let me give you a definition for spirit baptism as you go back to Romans chapter 6. Spirit baptism. Something God the Spirit does for us the moment we're born again. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, one theologian said, may be defined as the work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of their salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was foretold by John the Baptist, understood in the outworking of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's the work of the Holy Spirit placing us into Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Um, I know that there's people who have been saved in here for days. And this is a Bible doctrine that's a little bit more difficult to understand. I'll just summarize it like this. When you're baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment you're born again, by the way, most of us, if not all of us, had no clue what spirit baptism was the moment we got saved. Would you agree? All right. So now we're learning what happened to us the moment we got saved that we may never know known before. The Spirit of God places us into union with Jesus Christ. So here's the simple summary. Everything that Jesus Christ has done for us and everything that is promised to him by his Father. We now have done and we now are the recipients of the same promises. It doesn't make us infinite like he is. We're still finite. But remember what I said. Everything that Christ has done for us and everything that God's promised to him, we now have done And we will enjoy the promises. What does that mean? Well, let's explain in the rest of the passage. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Remember, he's asking a question here in order that he might provide an answer. What he's going to say here, when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. When Christ died for sin, he died unto sin. When Christ died, you died unto sin. The same power that Jesus Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit and authority of heaven, was exuded the morning of the resurrection, that same power that brought Jesus from being dead to being alive is now the same power that you have day to day over sin. The same power. The same power. The same power. This is the baptism of the Spirit. And he goes on to answer all those things, doesn't he? All those things, all that, that question in verse 3. He asks the question in verse 3, and he gives a therefore answer in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly 
we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's right there. So yes, we understand from spirit baptism in the text that we've already read and cross-referenced that all believers are baptized in the spirit at conversion. Nowhere in the scripture does the Bible tell a believer to pray that they would be baptized by the spirit. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that the baptism of the spirit is only selective for certain people. Both this text and the prophecies about this text and the fulfillment of this text in Acts 2 and ever since Acts 2, every believer that's born again is baptized into the spirit. Baptized into Christ by the spirit. Every believer. And because of that spirit baptism, every believer has the same power over sin available to them by the grace of God that Christ had. All right? Every believer has the ability to walk in newness of life as Christ did. So, Pastor Tim, I still sin. Well, we're going to get on to that here. Right? I'm talking about grace sufficient to be able to underpin our learning of this doctrine and our learning of this doctrine should create in our minds Possibly for some of us, a new reality that we had no idea that we experienced the moment that we were born again. And understanding that new reality, we were able to move forward, right? Take the mind, engage the heart, and then submit our wills to it, right? So sometimes there's got to be some learning before there can be some doing here, So all believers are baptized by the Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible tell a believer to be baptized in the Spirit. And Spirit baptism places us under Christ, and therefore we all have one Lord and one faith. You can cross-reference here Ephesians 4 as well, verses 1 to 4, where Paul says we all enjoy one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I believe that's a reference to spirit baptism as well. Right? There are other fruits of spirit baptism in the believer's life. First of all, it joins us with the body of Christ in the local church. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Secondly, it actualizes. I love the way this theologian puts this. It actualizes the crucifixion of Christ on our behalf. We are joined to Christ completely in salvation. We have now experienced what he has experienced for us. He died to sin. We die to sin. He is raised in resurrection life. We enjoy newness of life as well because of his resurrection. The third fruit of spirit baptism is that we get the opportunity to exercise spiritual gifts that are granted to us by the grace of God. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're given spiritual gifts that function inside the local church under the glory of God and the promotion of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to Ephesians 4, spirit baptism gives us the ability to maintenance the unity that the Spirit of God has given to the church. A lot of divine and practical benefits to spirit baptism, something that happened to us the moment we're born again, that was done for us by God the Spirit himself. So for our immediate context at hand, spirit baptism ensures the believer the ability to walk away from the power of sin in their lives. Now, I want to ask, I'm going to stop, all right? Because I think this probably applies to a lot of us. How many of you have been walking away from the pattern of sin and or one particular sin that has a tendency to dominate your life? 
Now, if you're saying I haven't been successful, all I'm telling you is the lack of your success is directly tied to what you don't know about the Bible. Okay? So I'm encouraging you to know more doctrine and avail yourself to learn more personally, collectively, together. Okay? All right. Another author said, when I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, I am in Christ and fully identified with him. Therefore, whatever happened to Christ happened to me. When he died, I died. When he arose, I arose with him. I am now seated with him in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Colossians 3, 1 to 3. Because of this union with Christ, the believer has a totally new relationship to sin. By birth, we are completely identified with Adam and his sin. At salvation, we now become completely identified with Christ by spirit baptism unto Christ's righteousness. None of us have a hard time understanding this doctrine if we equate it to when we were first saved. It's really interesting to me, the way the Christian life works sometimes. Do you remember when you were first saved and you were really excited? You weren't excited when you were first saved? All right, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. Do you remember how you just were in the spiritual honeymoon time? Where you were really experiencing practically the realities of, of spirit baptism? Immediately you can remember having a different relationship with sin, couldn't you? Some of you can even remember that there was one thing that you used to fall prey to all the time in your life before you were saved that you haven't since. God can do that. Doesn't mean you won't be tempted by it again, but you've demonstrated power over it. All of us would say that spirit baptism has influenced us and that we've generally moved away from patterns of sin in our life. But as we grow older in the Lord, the excitement of those newfound days of our faith is only continually enjoyed the more we know about Bible doctrine. It's really interesting. The moment we're born again, that honeymoon experience, that's just us immediately enjoying the reality of a miracle that God performed in our hearts. How is the joy, though, sustained? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you know about the Bible, the more your joy is able to be sustained and the reality of what Jesus did for you in relationship to sin the moment you're born again. So it's very clear here in verses 2 to 10 that our relationship with sin changes. The text that we've already read, we are now dead to sin. We are dead to sin. What does it mean to be dead to sin? My mother-in-law was killed by a drunk driver on the way to Rhonda's uh, college graduation. The drunk driver was also killed in that accident. Would you all agree with me that that drunk driver never again had a craving for alcohol? Would you agree for me that he was probably never tempted to think about it? Touch it, taste it, look at it, be tempted by it? He can't, can he? Why? He's dead. The dude's dead. Right? Same language here. Spirit baptism causes us to experience literally, 
figuratively, the death of Christ. He died unto sin. When we die in Jesus Christ, we become dead unto sin. That's what supernatural grace does. Dead is dead. So it is for us. We've been made alive in Christ. Think about Colossians 3.5. What does Paul tell the Colossians there? Consider dead, reckon dead, or mortify your members. Remember that? Colossians 3. How do we do that? We're just considering ourselves to be dead to it based on the doctrine of what we know about baptism of the Spirit. We're dead. What Christ experienced, we experienced. What he experienced, literally, we experienced figuratively, but miraculously in our practice, it's demonstrated through our born-again experience. Our relationship to sin changes forever. Think of Galatians 2.20. Go with me in your Bibles there real quickly. Galatians chapter 2. A very, very familiar passage to all of you. Paul says there, I am crucified with Christ. Remember that? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. By the way, for you Greek people, that's aorist tense. Something that happened in the past for sure with continuing results. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. A new relationship to sin. And the life which I now live in this beachhead for sin, the flesh, I live by faith. And faith is developed by the understanding of the word. And the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now go over to chapter 6. And let's look at some similar wording here in chapter 6 and verse 14. Again, practical realities of spirit baptism in our lives. Paul is in a final discussion here about the influence of the law compared to grace. Right? He says in verse 13, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul says, no, salvation doesn't come by works, even Mosaic Jewish works. He says, but it may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which, what? The world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. That's in the perfect tense for those of you. So we go from Arist in chapter 2.20 to perfect tense in 6.14 to demonstrate that what happened at spirit baptism was conclusive and it was permanent. Our relationship to sin changed. It is not me living anymore, it's Christ living in me. The world has even recognized it. And guess what? The world doesn't even have any more use for me. The world died to me. And I have died to the world. Completely different relationship with sin, to be sure. 
So that's why we can walk in newness of life. That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 could say that we need to set our affections on things above. That's our new reality. We exist there with Jesus Christ and our position with him. We're already established in the eternal heavenlies. That's us. Because I am him. I am his and he is mine. Because we've been loved with an everlasting love. So verses 6 to 10 just teaches us that we should not be servants to sin. Verse 6 says, sin has been done away with. It's been rendered literally inactive. Cross-reference next to 610, chapter 7 and verse 2. The same word used for a husband's, for a woman who's released from the bond of marriage to her husband when he dies and she is free to remarry uh, is the same grammatical uh, um, reality of chapter 6 and verse 6. That relationship has been set aside, so now she is free. The power of sin over us has been rendered inactive. It's been set aside. It's been loosed from us. And so now in Christ, we are able to live. Certainly is a change in relationship. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because we have died to Christ. Next week we'll begin the sermon with the question, So why am I still tempted? This is the doctrinal part. We'll start next week with that question, so why am I still tempted to sin? But for now, there's some things that we needed to know. And you may not have known them before, right? And if you need to know more about spirit baptism, we will certainly be glad to teach you in multiple different formats of the miracle of what happened to you the day you were born again. All right? Let's pray together.